If you're looking for something to do this May 30th through June 2nd, why don't you join us at CrimeCon in Nashville, Tennessee? We can all rub elbows with people like John Walsh, John Douglas, and Chris Hansen. Come and visit Murder in the Rain on Podcast Row, where we'll be sitting next to some of our own favorite podcasts. You can get 10% off your tickets by using code RAIN at checkout at CrimeCon.com. Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. Last week, I told you about the disappearance and subsequent discovery of Mandy Stavick. She had been abducted while on a jog in Acme, Washington, an activity she did regularly when she lived there with her mom and siblings, so it wasn't strange for her to do so when she was home from college for the Thanksgiving holiday break. When her body was recovered from the waters of the Noonsack River, it was clear she had been left delirious, if not unconscious, due to a blow to the head before being placed face down in the water, where she then drowned. As tenacious as the investigation was, there were no leads, and Mandy's case went cold. The only evidence they had that would have brought the case to a close was semen that had been recovered from Mandy's body from her being raped. Suspects and potential suspects were tested against the sample, but they were cleared. Now, did they officially at or did they officially say she was raped or, or were they still questioning whether it could have been consensual sex? Hmm. I cannot speak for what they were thinking at the time, but charges do come that okay. involve rape. OK, because I know you mentioned in, in last week's episode that. Uh, they weren't sure exactly that they had a time frame of when it happened. They don't know if she had like snuck out. I and think had it's sex. more that the time frame was so ridiculous that it had to have been that. So the the time frame was only the 12 hours and she had her friends staying with her. They had the aunt in town. She had her siblings and who knows mm-hmm. what else, family members and friends for the holiday. And so to have snuck out of the house and then get back in time for everyone to be up and having breakfast that seemed pretty silly to everyone that knew her. Like, that just was not something she would have done. And then after that, she had, like, a very small window of time as well. Okay. So, But they didn't say, like, in her autopsy results that there were, there like, weren't, da- damages to her Not body. that they saw, but because of the semen and the time, it was like everyone came to that conclusion. Okay. Yeah. That's when someone on the team recalled the case of Don and Linda and how DNA was used to catch their killer thanks to a systematic DNA sweep of sorts. So Acme police figured if it worked then, it should work for them. Or at least that's what they hoped. For their best chance at catching the killer, police went back nearly 20 years to create a list of potential sample providers. It would include men who, like Colin Pitchfork's DNA, had a specific blood type and within a certain age range, and also checking those who may have been spending time with her shortly before her death. That left Acme police with hundreds of possibilities. 
the daunting procedure of going door to door to each man who fit the criteria to ask for a cheek swab to use to either clear or convict them of murder began. Without hesitation, each man they requested a swab from complied. For some, even though police didn't say directly, they knew it had to be related to the Mandy Stavick murder. The broken heart her death had left Acme with had never really healed. It took a lot of work and time to process so many samples. At one point, a batch of 31 swabs were sent in. Hearing that none of them matched was disheartening, of course, but the collection continued. Through all of this, Mary tried to hold on to hope, even though it took all of her strength to keep it in her grasp. Her heart dreamed the killer would be found. Her head said all of that police work was a waste of time, and even if it did work out, it wasn't like the capture of the perpetrator would bring her daughter back. As time went on, so did the collecting, and eventually over 80 samples were tested. Detective Bowie didn't rest his arms on the DNA report only, though. He continued to look at the old case files and the lists of people interviewed from when the crime took place. That's when a tip came in that changed everything. It was in 2013 when two moms— Heather and Marilee, were hanging out at the Birch Bay Waterslide Park with their kids. As they basked in the sunshine, keeping an eye on their kiddos, Mandy's case came up. It had been 23 years since the murder, but neither had forgotten her, nor had they ever told anyone their feelings about the case, which mm. was that they each felt they knew who had done it. <gasps> Small town, everyone knows. You and me hanging out somewhere. Of course. Actually, did we just solve this case? <laughs> As they started to talk, they were shocked to find that they felt it was the same person. Ooh. A man who had been a total creep to them on separate occasions. A man who just gave them the vibe that he was the type of guy who could have done such a thing. The man they were convinced had killed Mandy was Tim. They had all gone to the same high school, but were in different years. In general, they didn't like how he looked at them. Then Mom Heather said that when she was about 15 years old, and Tim was about 20-something, she was at a softball game with some friends. This was just a few months before Mandy's abduction and murder. After the game, they went to the nearby Dairy Queen for a frozen treat. As they left the field to go get ice cream, Tim hopped into the car, making for an overcrowded back seat. Ugh. The whole ride, he kept talking to Heather about her beautiful eyes before he took a pen and rubbed it up and down her exposed leg. Ew. Very ew. A pen? Yeah, like a writing pen. What a weirdo. Yeah. Marilee couldn't believe that they had both had gross experiences with the same guy. So she shared that in July of 1991, she was home alone with her son sleeping in the back bedroom. Tim came knocking on her door, asking to use the telephone as he had been out hunting all day and needed to call his wife. She didn't love the idea, but was too generous to tell him to buzz off, so she let him come in and use the phone. Instead of staying in the entryway, he helped himself to her bedroom. Picking up the phone, he smashed some numbers, and after he dialed, she could hear the loud message of, We're sorry, the number you have dialed is not in service at this time. Marilee's heart was racing. She knew something was wrong with the whole situation. After calling no one, Tim turned to her and said he had driven by her home on multiple occasions, claimed to be in love with her, and asked that they make love right oh, there on her bed. What? Disgusting. A delusional. 
situation. Yeah. And that would be so scary. Now he's in your, not just at your house, but like you let deep him in inside and, your mm-hmm. house. You're thinking, how can I get him out? Uh-huh. What can I do? Every scenario. Mm-hmm. God. She told him to leave and threatened to call the cops if he didn't do so. So he left. The girls realized, especially Marilee, how close she had come to being in real danger. And even though it had been decades since Mandy's death, maybe their tip would help. So they called in and reported that they felt Tim Bass was a murderer. Detective Bowie, who was assigned the case in 2009, received the tip and went through the list of interviewees looking for information about Tim Bass. Who was this man and possible killer? Tim Bass was actually Tom's brother, one of the boys Mandy and her friend had made plans to hang out with the night of her murder. Bowie was surprised to find that Tom had been spoken to, but not the rest of the Bass boys. Really? Doesn't that seem odd since there was a friendship there? Doesn't it seem even more strange that the Bass house was on the jogging route Mandy always Mm -hmm. used? They were one of the 10 houses on the 2.5 mile stretch of road. So, of course, you're wondering, what was the very reasonable explanation as to why Tim wasn't questioned back in 1989? That was because police didn't want to bother the well-to-do, well-liked, and well-known Bass family. It would be uncouth to have their family questioned. Pause for Emily's annoyed reaction. (laughs) Oh, you knew. Are you kidding me? Like, first of all, you're willing to sweep the entire town for their semen, but you weren't willing to talk to males in the ripe old age of... Yeah. It's like you don't have to take that extreme measure 25 years later if you had done the basic thing. Which is interview the people that lived closest to her Every single route. person on that road. That's shocking. But, but not shocking because... In a small town, mm-hmm. money is everything, and whoever has the money is in charge. Well, and it does have an effect. Like, not necessarily money, but okay, maybe the dad has some pull, or he's a well-known business guy. Like, I don't know anything about the Or the about newspaper, the like Josh's case we did a few weeks back. Yeah. If they're in charge of the newspaper, mm-hmm. you know. Or like, I'm not going to vote for the sheriff, or I'm not going to... You embarrassed us. I'm mad at the mayor. Like, who knows? There, There's not information about the dad being like that or anything, but... Yeah, in a small town or just like, oh, I'm not going to bother the Bass Boys. They're good kids. And it's not like it was a robbery or like yeah. someone got beat up. Like th- these were, this is a murder. Yeah. That's someone's life. And and as big as the scope of the crime scene is with, with her being picked up and then taken the six miles and then she went up river six, five miles. So that does make for a big area, but it's pretty obvious from the tracking and everything She was abducted on that road. If you know she's from that exact road, how do you not question everyone just to see what they saw? Yeah. Did you see a vehicle? Did you see a person? Did you see her go by? What time was that? No, we don't want them to look like they're That's really frustrating. Isn't it, though? Realizing the mistake his predecessors had made, Detective Bowie moved Tim Bass from lower on the to-be-tested list to the top. He then located Tim and went to his home. His wife of 23 years, Gina, answered the door. Officers asked to speak with Tim, and Gina's gut told her right away that she thought the questions would be related to Mandy. Oh, snap. Mm -hmm. Once Tim got to the door, they asked if he could provide a sample to have his name cleared. When police informed him that they were there for a sample as it related to the Mandy Stavick case, Tim was lost in thought for a moment. 
both officers present, noticed how odd it was that when Tim heard that, he kind of just stared up to the ceiling, rolling his eyes around as though he was just trying to remember who it was they were talking about. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. Eventually, it came back to him. He did remember Mandy, not as the girl that grew up in his small community with him, not as his brother's friend, not even as the most famous unsolved murder in the area. He went full Buffalo Bill. Oh, wait, she's a great big fat girl. And he said, oh, that was the girl found in the river. So just totally played dumb. What? Like, oh, she was in the river, right? (laughs) Like, that's going to make you look like less of a a suspect. Yeah. Instead of way more to be like, you mean the friend? You mean the girl you knew? That was probably at your house several occasions. Yeah. Wow. As they continued to speak with Tom about Mandy, he claimed he didn't really know her and hadn't even known where she was living at the time of her murder. And with that, he refused to provide a sample unless the officers returned with a warrant. Sure, not cooperating with police to clear your name as a suspect sounds like something a suspect would do. Unfortunately, his behavior wasn't enough of a cause to get the warrant. When Gina was confused about why he wouldn't give a sample, he claimed he was worried about being framed. He didn't trust the cops, and he said that since Mandy's murder, he had a fear of police showing up to pin her death on him. Now listen, I kind of get it. I would tell people in my circle, do not give your sample without a warrant. Like, I would say the same thing. So that isn't a red flag to me, but, you know, the other stuff is. (laughs) Yeah, and kind of setting up, not necessarily like an alibi, but setting up, oh, this is exactly what I knew would happen, that they would pin it on me. Well... Yeah. It, you know, makes you wonder why he would be feeling that way. Because <laughs> he did it. Obviously. <laughs> oh, or did he? Oh. In February 2015, police once again talked to him about his possible involvement in Mandy's murder. Again, they didn't have a lot to work with, but had hoped the pressure would lead to some cracks. Unbeknownst to investigators, their second interview had really shaken Tim. Scared, he talked to his brother about the police. As they spoke, it was clear Tim was feeling anxious. Tom asked him why he would be scared about the police talking to him, and that's when Tim dropped a bombshell. What? He, the weird kid that had made everyone nervous as a teen and didn't really have many friends, had been having a clandestine affair with Mandy, and he was scared that the DNA could have matched from when they had had sex during her visit back home. Oh dear, that is valid. Tom found that pretty hard to believe. Not just because he wouldn't believe his brother, but no one in Acme, heck, no one in Washington would have believed that Mandy, the beautiful, bubbly, blonde 80s babe, would have anything to do with Tim. Uh, I mean, we all have those those people in our life, I think, at one point. I mean, a crush I've had the longest is Steve Buscemi, so like, yeah, we get like, it. Yeah, like, here's the thing. She's not here to defend herself. We don't, you know... There are people who have had secret relationships. It's true. And their friends don't know about it. Did she have a diary? I don't know. It's true. And, yeah, and I that's hard. Though. I mean, she can't speak for herself. It's true. And he, he's, he probably did do it, but hey, he's trying any argument he can. Exactly. And we're not talking about a league difference. We're talking about different sports. And it's not just about looks. They were very different people socially. 
If you haven't seen his picture on our episode blog, it's like if John Oliver was an incel and he claimed to be having a relationship with peak 80s Melanie Griffith. Not only was the relationship claim hard to take seriously, but Tom knew that if Mandy had even hung out with, let alone slept with his brother, the whole town would have known. (laughs) There was no way that he was not going to brag about that. That's a good point. When asked how Tim was able to make that happen, he told Tom, Oh, I just went up to her and said, Oh, you're keeping fit. And that was it. Tim went on to say the affair had been going on since the spring before she left for college and through the summer. In all, there had only been a couple of sexual encounters. Another reason their love had to stay a secret was because Mandy was on and off with Rick and Tim was dating his future wife, Gina. They had started dating while she was a junior and he was 21 years old. They had made plans to get married and were looking for a wedding date in the summer of 89, just a few weeks after Gina was set to graduate high school. Instead, Tim was suddenly in a rush to be wed in January of 1990, just six weeks after Mandy was killed. And I think there's a a weird, like, like a responsibility of trust that is put onto women where it's like if a woman is with someone, then she's putting her stamp on him of being yeah, he's safe okay. or he's a, a good, good guy. guy or whatever. And it's like, well, you don't know what goes on behind closed doors and you don't know what he's doing that he's hiding from her. Yep. And so I've never really thought about that, that it's another responsibility put on women like, oh, you should have known he was a killer. And huh, let's think about all the serial killers. They weren't all just like single guys. Yeah, There were a few, but... A lot of them had a sham of a life. Yeah. BTK is one that comes to mind. Yeah. Church guy and all that. Yeah. It's just Robert Lee Yates. Mm-hmm. Like they're, so, they, they masked themselves to look normal. Yeah. And so it's like, yeah, pushing up your wedding by six months. So it's like, oh, how could I have killed her? I'm a happily married man now. Like as if that, as if marriage suddenly makes you like a safer person or something. Then Tom's gut sank. Besides hearing his brother, as far as he could tell, lie about a relationship, Tim had a favor to ask. He hoped that if the police came to talk to Tom again about Mandy, that he would lie and say that he had also slept with her back in the day. Tom wanted Mandy to be painted as the girl that got around. What a dick. Now, I appreciated your open-mindedness before that that could have happened. Hey, I haven't seen, I didn't see his picture at that moment. Oh, hey, it's not about the looks. <laughs> I, 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 you were, you were approaching the case with an open mind. I'm trying to be because I feel like, yes, the likely scenario is he's lying. There is probably someone out there where it was true. You know? Right. I'm sure that has. Ha- and that's the thing talking about doing DNA sweeps. You end up with people that have maybe had sex with someone consensually, totally mm-hmm. separate from the situation, and then going home, something happens. Yeah, but the, this move, what? But a when day. you ask your brother to be like, "Hey, will you tell him that?" She and that's was a his slut? friend. That was his that was, friend. He was one of the three guys that went to Mary's house as soon as he heard. What a f- piece yeah. of shit! Yeah. A few days after the second interaction with police, Tim and Gina went to talk to Tim's mother, Sandra. Tim had a favor to ask of her as well. This was a much bigger ask than that of his brothers. He wanted his mother to put the blame for Mandy's murder on his by then deceased father. Who is this guy? Have you ever heard of that? That's disgusting. Yeah. Well, he's dead now, so it would work out for everybody. You're going to ruin how people see your father? Mm Mm-hmm. 
Oh, my God. Which I don't know what he was even thinking with that, because if he's worried about the semen and the DNA, I guess he was hoping for like only a partial match. Well, and I was going to say, like, oh, maybe it was my dad. The though. cheaper, quicker way is just to determine the paternity, like the male. Yeah. Remember, we talked about that mm-hmm. in the Starbucks case. Yeah. And so that could have that could have flown if they didn't do deep testing yeah. and went to trial. He could point the fingers at another male in his household. Yeah. But wow. Wow, wow, wow. That is horrible. What a terrible person. Mm-hmm. As if we didn't know that already. But right. Still. Extra terrible. Surprised and upset, Sandra simply put her hands to her face and told him no. Looking more into Tim's life, officers found out about his marriage, that he and Gina had three kids, and they lived, not in Acme, but in the same general area. He had a job as a delivery driver for Fran's Bakery, Hello, another bakery employee like Colin Pitchfork in the story from part one, like Robert Hansen in Alaska. Not judging bakers, but like, what is up with that? Is it the weird hours? It's that weird time they keep you. <laughs> yeah, it's the weird hours. <laughs> <There you go. laughs> I'm not going to judge all bakers by that, but that is pretty crazy. It's definitely not all bakers, but I think it is that you have to be like vigorously at work at like 3 a.m. <laughs> Well, you do see that list of like serial killers, um, star chart or whatever. Like they're all Libras. Oh, right. Pisces. Right. And jobs. It's like truck driver, bakery guy. Oh, boy. (laughs) Going to police headquarters, police asked Kim Wagner, the manager of the location, if they could get route information for the employees and to do a touch DNA test in the trucks as part of an investigation. She said, because she totally rules. Um, basically, that's above my pay grade, and no. The police were connected to the Franz corporate offices, where their requests for routes and testing were denied. And without enough probable cause, they weren't given a warrant. So they weren't all the way back to square one, but they were back to, like, square two. But they could get his DNA off a cup or something. Doesn't that sound simple? It would be another two years before detectives tried to get more information from Franz. Talking to Kim again, she had realized since their last visit that they must have been talking about Mandy's case. This came to her when talking to a friend about the police coming by her work and how she always had the hunch that they had been there because of Mandy. When a friend mentioned that Tim, Kim's now employee, had lived on Mandy's road, she knew he was the suspect. Mm-hmm, girl. Bowie confirmed with Kim that he was, in fact, working on that case, and he was hoping he could just get general information about Tim's routes. Knowing what the info was going to be used for, Kim provided it. Shortly after, police set up a surveillance team to follow Tim around town. They weren't following him around in hopes of catching him committing a crime. They were specifically following him to get a sample of DNA. Day after day, they followed him, but he never threw anything in the trash. Did he know they were following him? Because if he was being careful, he doesn't seem like he'd be that smart, but maybe Mm, he was. Even checking his truck at the end of the day, he didn't leave trash in the trash can. He was literally taking his garbage home with him. He just has a pile of garbage in his house. (laughs) Someday it'll be safe to take it out. Hopefully he puts them in his dumpster. But yeah, but they could go in there. Yeah, he just stands next to it when it's at the curb. He's like, I'm not putting it out to the curb yet. I'll tell you just how the police did gather that DNA right after this short break.
Now, it just so happens police can't ask a citizen to collect evidence for them. It's illegal. But if someone happens to come across evidence and they turn it in, well, there's no harm in that. So that was when Kim decided she needed to take matters into her own hands. Tim was a driver, but he still needed to use the offices. So Kim set them up to be as clean as a crime scene. She kept gloves in her desk, didn't use the trash cans, and she left them prepped with clean, unused bags. But Tim was savvy, to an extent. He didn't throw things away. That is, until the day he did. It was a cup and a water bottle. Kim couldn't believe her luck. Trying to not look excited at his disposal or react too quickly, she waited until the coast was clear, threw on some gloves, grabbed the items, and threw them in her desk. She then turned them over to detectives who sent them in for testing. It had been nearly 30 years since Mandy was killed and the semen was left behind. Testing the DNA from Tim's cup, it was found to be a match. Mm. It didn't seem surprising or upsetting to Tim that he was being arrested. Read his rights, he didn't ask for a lawyer. He was happy to speak with police. Without any emotion, he flat out denied having anything to do with it. He didn't know her. He didn't touch her. He never <laughs> kissed her. Certainly didn't hurt her. Well, so that goes against his idea of telling them he was having a consensual sexual relationship. Well, that was her. only to his brother. Oh, okay. O- that Perhaps was only him asking his here. brother, saying, hey, um, I had had sex with her, and if there's DNA, Right, but it's now he can't use that as an, an excuse in court. Otherwise, it looks in- makes him look like he's flip-flopping. Doesn't it, though? As detectives countered his lies with, but we have your DNA, he became much more focused on how they got it than anything else. His response had an almost, but I was so careful, tone. Frustrated at the whole ordeal, he asked if the cops got his DNA sneakily, as though he knew trash could lead to a match. When it was confirmed the DNA had been taken from a cup he had used, Tim's entire story changed. There was something he had been wanting to tell the police for quite some time, but he had been scared to do it as he felt it could look bad and he could be viewed as a suspect. Just as he had done with his brother, he claimed he and Mandy had had sex that week that they had met back in the spring when Tim and his dad were out riding bikes and crossed her path as she was jogging. She joined alongside them, and that was that. She left for school, their romance, or whatever it had been, ended. As for any proof of the relationship, there wasn't a shred of it. They had never called each other. They had never written each other letters. They just had an open plan for her to meet up with him when she came back to town. When asked what the two would be doing when they were hanging out, Tim played down the sexual component. Sure, we went there a couple of times, but they were more like booty calls. Their relationship was much more about building a friendship and talking. That sounds nice and all, but when police pushed for more, well, actually when they pushed for basic information, Tim couldn't provide it. If all you guys did was talk, then where did she go to college? What was she going to school for? What were her goals, her dreams, plans for the future? He couldn't answer any of them. He couldn't even give a decent answer when the police asked him, if not those things, what did you talk about? When asked if anyone besides he and Mandy had known of the relationship, Tim claimed to have talked to his dad about it. Except, darn it, his dad was dead and he couldn't be questioned. 
It would be interesting to find out more about that relationship and that dynamic. With the father? Yeah. And why he's so keen to throw him under the bus. Yeah. Maybe he just wasn't the favorite of the brothers. Yeah. His wife, Gina, also being interviewed, stuck by his side, not out of loyalty, but from fear. She thought she could clear everything up. On the day in question, all those years ago, she was doing what she normally did. She was going to Tim's house after school. As she was going, she even passed Mandy on the road. And when she got there, Tim was sitting on the couch waiting for her like always. Neither of them left the house until she went home that night. Tim was arrested on December 12, 2017, which just so happened to be Mary Stavick's 81st birthday. Detectives were elated to be giving her that gift, telling her they caught him. Mary had actually lost so much hope She was confused at first and needed clarification as to who the him was they were referencing. They told her, the him is the man who killed your daughter. With the DNA evidence, along with the stories of Tim's behavior and his proximity to the crime, it seemed like the only next logical step would be for Tim to plead guilty, which, of course, he didn't. Because he's a narcissist. Mm Mm-hmm. Going to trial, it was formerly retired special prosecutor David McGarren who took the case for the state. He had been working for the county back when Mandy was killed. The case stayed with him through the years as it had been the one that took Acme's innocence, saying, quote, I've never seen a case that had an impact like this one did. People felt that they didn't have a sense of safety. It was the realization that we're not all safe and that there was a monster who was really living among us. The 73-year-old was happy to be back in the courtroom and couldn't wait to put Mandy's killer behind bars. It was 28 years after Mandy was taken when Tim's trial began. For the prosecution, they felt all the evidence pointed to Tim. He had lived on the same street. He had seen her run by hundreds of times. She was friends with his brother. His semen, which matched his DNA, was inside of her. Painting a picture of the events that transpired, the prosecution explained how Mandy had gone on her five-mile run. A quarter mile from home, where the road takes a bend, there's a small wooded area, the perfect place for someone to wait for a jogger to pass by, which is what they claimed Tim had done. When Mandy was close enough, he grabbed her into the woods and took her into a vehicle. Driving six miles south, he then raped Mandy, but she was able to escape and made a run for it through the blackberry bushes, caring not about her lack of clothes or the thorns ripping at her skin. At some point, though, even if he had to drive, Tim caught up with her. Striking her head, he tried to hide all of the evidence of his wrongdoing by putting her in the river. He hadn't counted on her body getting stuck in the debris. He was sexually motivated and was known as being a creep. There was no way it wasn't him. That's when the state got to hear the defense's story, which was DNA doesn't equal murder. Mm. Semen doesn't equal murder. In fact, all it did was prove that Tim and Mandy had had a relationship. He doesn't know what happened to her after they met up, but it hadn't been his fault. The witness stand stayed busy, mostly with people speaking against Tim. First, there was Mary, the mother of the victim, At 82 years old now, she recounted hearing the news that Mandy's body had been discovered. She was one of the first of many witnesses to say they never, at any point, saw Mandy and Tim together in a social way. In fact, there were zero witnesses that claimed to have ever seen the two even interact with each other. 
Even Tim's own brother, Tom, took the stand in support of the prosecution. He told the jury the story of the police interactions spurring his brother's desperate lies and attempts to get Tom to lie on his behalf. Another lie he tried to formulate was to have his mom say that she was out Christmas shopping with Tim during the time in question. Tom said Tim was panicking and said, the cops are lying. Everyone's out to get me. I need a strong alibi or I'm going to prison. Mom, maybe you can say we were Christmas shopping. Wow. that I mean, that is awesome that he told mm-hmm. everyone what his brother was really like. But yeah, that he was willing to take the stand against him. I mean, that's hard, but... Good and I, him. I think that also speaks kind of to Tim's vibe, like yeah. that he rubbed literally everyone, including his own brother, the wrong way. Mm-hmm. But also, if you're going to bring my dead father into it. Yeah, what a jerk. Like he thought they'd be like, yeah, well, that sounds good. Let's yeah, do it. Yeah. Keep the family together. Yeah, exactly. As for his bizarre behavior and personality, Tim had been a loner as a kid, but became socially isolated as a teenager. It was a while before Mandy's murder that Tim had been dumped by a girlfriend. Holding the gun he had stashed in his room, he threatened to take his own life. At one point, he did pull the trigger, but it was just to let a shot out into the air. After that incident, Tom claimed his brother was different. The heartache had left him with a hatred and disgust towards women. He viewed them as lesser. Someone who could attest to this firsthand was Tim's now ex-wife, Gina. She had filed for divorce as soon as he was arrested. Sharing how the former couple had met, it was back when she worked at her grandpa's market and Tim came in for a hunting license. Without hesitation, he asked her out. She never knew why the marriage plan of waiting until summer was vetoed for a winter wedding while she was still in school, but now it was looking like it may have just been to make him look good or as a reason to get out of town. Gina confessed to having given a false alibi at the start of the investigation. In fact, on the Friday she said that she had been with Tim, she had actually never left her own house and hadn't seen him at all that day. She had no way to account for his whereabouts. She said she had made it all up not to protect Tim, but herself. He said that if she didn't lie, he would be taken to prison and she would be left with three kids and no income. It wasn't long into their marriage that the abuse started. Tim used coercive control in every aspect of Gina's life. He dictated who she could see, talk to. He was physically abusive, shoving her and threatening to do harm. He wouldn't call her Gina or even wife. She was called woman or poor bitch. At her wit's end in 2010, she filed an order of protection against him for herself and their three children. In it, she claimed she didn't feel safe around him. Besides the abuse, he would spend his free time watching shows like Cold Case Files or murder-themed films and Mm. spend the time talking shit about the killers. He gregariously declared he would never make those mistakes, bragging that he could easily commit murder and never be caught. What a dick. And yes, I do think he was aware they were trying to get his DNA. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was like obsessively watching shows. It was like all he watched. So by then, he was probably aware that not only they could get DNA from that, but that they were doing matches like that. Soon after filing the order, Gina revoked it. His threats had changed, and he promised to take her to court and take the kids away from her, something that she just couldn't risk. She told the jury about how Tim asked his own mother to lie, how he would have been fine with his father also taking the blame. When Mandy was killed, 19-year-old Kim Wagner had begun her job of delivering Fran's bread around Acme. 
long before she would become the headquarters manager. So the murder shook her at the time and stayed with her through the years. When she met Tim at the bakery, she was put off by him from the start. She found him to be arrogant and insecure. He was what she dubbed a weirdo who never threw anything away and didn't even leave his uniform to be laundered like everyone else did. Kim had also been on the receiving end of Tim's sexism, and he would dish it out to her, only referring to her as woman. On the occasions he would come into the office, Kim never knew what version of Tim she would be getting. Would he be happy and talkative? Would he be moody and aggressive? He had her on eggshells. He had her so nervous she was frightened after aiding the police in obtaining the DNA sample, scared that he might retaliate or hire someone to do so. Luckily, that never happened. As for the DNA, that was a 1 in 11 quadrillion match. Quadrillion has 15 zeros, just to give you an idea of how much of a match it was. But that didn't phase the defense. Yes, they agreed. His DNA matched that which had been recovered from her body. And yes, his semen was inside of her. But that was because they had had sex. The prosecution was trying to pin a murder based off of a sexual assault. There was no proof the sex wasn't consensual. Every other person that had been called in on the tip line for being a strange dude had been ignored. They could have been the killer, but because their DNA didn't match, it was ignored. It was very possible this young girl, home from college, snuck out to have a secret hookup. It happens all the time. To which the prosecution simply asked the jury, do you really believe this girl snuck out of her window in the middle of the night to go meet up with this guy to have a sexual relationship and she never mentioned it to another soul? Like, how dare you even consider that argument? I, yeah. I mean, I know it's his life or whatever, but and they have to do their job. I but. think it's clever. I mean, you even said you were like, OK, they could have that could have happened. Sure. But and I still believe in Occam's razor. Right. Like and she's dead. His semen is on yeah. her body. And like, when you have the entire family and friends and everyone who's ever known her being like, no, she didn't sneak out. Yes, she would have told me if she was having somebody a would relationship. Know. Somebody would have known or witnessed it. Yeah. And there's nobody that could offer that. In your college age, you're going to be that good at being like super secret keeper instead of like, I can't wait to go home. Guess what? I have like a hookup waiting. Like somebody would know that that's most people. So it does suck because then it's like. But that's so unfair to her. Exactly. she, She can't argue that. You're not you're just you're not fighting just to get the killer behind bars. But now you have to fight to like protect or put back together her reputation. Yeah, that's fine. And I know that happens all, all constantly because it's an easy target is, oh, well, it's the victim's fault. But yeah, to to then turn it and be like, oh, no, she snuck out and got around and it's like so sick. Screw you. This guy sucks. Detectives also countered the argument made by the defense, saying that even after Tim was being looked at, all evidence was reexamined to be sure it pointed to him. They even sent in three dozen more samples to be tested. None were a match, only Tim's. When experts were brought in, the one for the defense claimed the semen could have been there for up to two weeks, which, yes, semen can stay in the body for up to that amount of time, even living for up to five days. But the prosecution's expert had a differing opinion. It looked as though the semen had only been there within the last 12 hours, at most. This went back to the early point that this young woman, who was not known for sneaking out, would have been surrounded by friends and family when she left the house around 3 to 5 a.m. to go meet up with Tim, have sex with him, and be back for breakfast. 
In closing, defense reminded the jury that they weren't there to charge him for having sex with Mandy. And he isn't a murderer just because he didn't cooperate. He had just seen a lot of TV and was scared of exactly what was happening. He, an innocent man, was being framed for Mandy's murder. The trial came to a close and the decision was left to the jury. In deliberations, there was some reasonable doubt at the start, but it only took a day for them to come to a decision. In front of a packed courtroom, 29 years and six months to the day that Mandy was killed, Tim Bass was found guilty of first-degree murder, kidnapping, and rape. For those crimes, he was given 320 months, which equals 26 and a half years. Now, that is a lot of years, and if he isn't paroled, which he'll be eligible for in 2039, he will probably die in prison. And in all fairness, because there wasn't a proof of premeditation, the judge couldn't give him life. Gina, Tim's ex-wife, felt like she had been in prison for 30 years being married to him, and now it was his turn. Mary and all of Mandy's family spent 30 years wishing for justice while a town was fearful a murderer was in their midst. They all had 30 years, and he gets 26? You and I talked about this a little at the live show, how mm. my new opinion is that a case like this, you, you're on the run or you are living your life for 29 and a half years, that's like your base sentence. Well, where do you where do you draw the line? Like if I'm on the run for five years, five isn't enough. Well, no, it's the sentence plus that. Oh, got it. Got so it, got he it. gets the 26 years plus 29 and a half years. Yeah. For for the pain and suffering of I the family. I don't disagree with you. I Something came up in my mind that I have to say, if they were, in fact, having a consensual sexual relationship mm -hmm. and they were so sneaky that nobody knew about it. Why the fuck wouldn't she use a condom? Mm. Give me a break. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, that if it's that secretive. If it's that secretive, you wouldn't take any chances. And it was the 80s. Like, everyone was talking about condoms at the time. Yeah. So that's a good point. I'm really, I hate this guy. <laughs> he sucks. He sucks so bad. And... Oh, just wait till you hear. Like no redeeming qualities whatsoever. No. And the fact that he would blame his father. Yeah. I mean, true. It's, he sounds like a true through and through narcissist, like meets the girl at her grandpa's general store and just asks her out. Yeah. Almost like he could tell right away. Maybe there was something about her that he was like, oh, I can I can get my claws into her. Oh, yeah. And we can get married in six months and we and she can be like my human my shield. alibi yeah yeah Just, ugh. yeah at sentencing sandra tim's mother spoke about his innocence when it was time for him to make a statement to the court tim sobbed through his remorseful apology mm -hmm. psych he began his statement by claiming his innocence yet again and well have a listen for yourself no i would first like to say that i'm 100 innocent of this crime Furthermore, I don't believe I've received a fair trial. In saying that, though, a better man than me says I should say very little today. I give this day to the staff family. Sir. I would like to address one thing. I love my father. He was my best friend. We did everything together. He died in an accident on February 17th. 2002, and I have not been the same since. I gave his eulogy 
I wrote his obituary. In my garage, I made a kind of memorial to him for my ex-wife, under oath, to get on that stand and say, I tried to blame this on him. That is hard to take. I have never been arrested before. I've never been unemployed. I don't do drugs. I don't drink. I've been married for almost, or I was married for almost three years. I raised three great children, two of them on the autism spectrum. While this investigation was going on, I, I actually delivered to this jail twice a week until 2016 when the route, there was route changes. I think that says a lot right there. They're saying that I was in fear, scared, delivered to this jail. I've tried to be respectful and kind my year and a half that I've been here. It's very hard to do when you're being accused of something like this. I will continue to be this way. This is just the way I am. I wish no ill will towards anyone here. Not even today. But I am having a hard time with this. Gina and her children have moved on as best they can. Remember, this was recent. He was sentenced just three years ago. But she knows he's guilty, and she's happy he's behind bars. Tom was sad he had to take the stand against his brother, but he knew it was the right thing to do. As for Heather and Marilee, the women who had close encounters with Tim, Tom feels that they easily could have also become victims. It was because of those women speaking up that a killer was brought to justice. Kim was happy to help with the investigation. As a mother, she says she did what she did in case she was ever in a situation like Mary. She would want people who could help to do so. She attributes Acme's never-ending love for Mandy as part of the reason Tim was finally caught. Mary Stavick, as best I can tell, is still alive and living in Washington. After living what she thought was a parent's worst nightmare with the loss of her son Brent, it's unfathomable that she had to live through it again with Mandy. When complimented on her strength, she finds it hard to believe. It's hard to feel strong when you've been ripped to pieces. She feels a sense of closure with Tim being caught, a part of her thought the case would never be closed. In 1990, some of Mandy's friends wrote a song, Mandy's Song, and sold cassettes to raise money for a scholarship created in Mandy's name at Mount Baker High. The endowment is awarded to students who mirror Mandy's love of school and activities. Besides participating in a music program, the criteria for recipients also includes their involvement in ASB, their community, their grades, work experience, and participation in athletics. You can find the scholarship and even donate if you'd like by visiting Mount Baker Scholarship, that's mtbakerscholarship.org, or you can Google Mandy Stavick Scholarship. Well, I'm glad that one was solved. Yes. What a roller coaster for me. First off, so frustrating that the cops didn't interview him. But I am glad that the later cops were like, we got to revamp all of this and we got to take it seriously. We got to do a a DNA sweep. Perfect example of what having fresh eyes in the case can Uh do, especially when they're doing their job correctly. And they're not swayed by, we don't want to make the family look bad. Honestly, I think, I think 
in murder cases, maybe having outside law enforcement run the case is ideal. Yeah. Something. Or get a group of armchair detectives that just... Like we've talked have about an office. policing the police and maybe that would make sense, like having a non-affiliated party. It really would because you can't have try you can't hold a trial somewhere if they're like, oh, this isn't fair because everyone in town knows. Them. Right. So why, why would it, it be the cops mm-hmm. if the cops like I had dinner at Jerry's house last night? I can't go interview him and about a murder. I'm not to say that every police system is flawed or whatever, but we constantly talk More about often this. than not <laughs> i'm just gonna say like there can be good people working for a corrupt system yeah and you put the wrong person in charge and this happens you yeah. know and it, it would be really cool to see i mean this is a really tiny town and this was their biggest murder case so you can see why they have the resources for that and bigger towns and bigger cities mm-hmm. don't but you wish that you know that energy that same like tenacity could be put to all of those cases, every, yeah. you know, cold case. Yeah. And I think this is a perfect example, and we talk about it all the time, of calling in those tips. Oh, yeah. This was more than 20 years later, and they happen to be like, yeah, he was a weirdo. Yeah, I didn't like it, and he did this thing. And, and it got it, you know, it was a combination of having the DNA and having all the information and all of that, and then them calling, they're like, okay, let's really look at this guy. Yeah. I don't know and even how the, long it would have taken to call, close it otherwise. Well, and those women chatting about it and going, oh, should we call it in? Had they not done that, they probably never would have. But like having yeah. each other to be like, yeah, that's a little weird. Maybe maybe they would care. Yeah. Um. So the smallest things. Yeah. Um. This also ties really well into talking about our live show that we just had. Yes. Because we both presented cases that you had there's some similar things you know mine was a 30 year old case dna finally solved it yeah um which was fascinating by the way i i could read about that shit forever i tell you what <laughs> you know i love that stuff but and uh that was our live show at the pacific northwest true crime festival and you guys it was so fun and it's gonna be a smash hit i, I feel yeah guarantee it's gonna be an annual thing yeah and we hope that we can get our listeners to you know, from all over the place to come in next year. Yeah, it's only going to get bigger and better, I think. It was so great to meet other shows like Ghosts and Hoes and True Crime BS and Bloodbath Podcast. And who else was there? A True Crime Cat Lawyer. Oh, and she's great. I don't know if you... I've listened to several of her episodes. Love her voice. Shut, love oh her my style. gosh, she had such a good voice. Such a good voice. So we had a blast. And it. And when we say get bigger and better, I mean, it was good. It was, it was really so good. good. It was well organized. I had very low expectations because I've gone to things before where I'm like, oh, this is going to, oh, an expo. How cool. And you walk in and it's like one little back room of a no, little this building. Was very this was organized. Like legit and so well put together. So we do want to say a huge thank you and congratulations and, and great work and every other compliment you could give to uh, the organizers of yeah. The Pacific Northwest True Crime Fest. So be sure to follow them on social media and stuff so that you find out about the next one. Oh, yeah. And we also want to thank everyone that came to our table we and our live show. We have the best, first of all, listeners who are able to come. 
You guys are awesome. But we have new people, too, that we met. Yeah. Like, everyone is so Oh, my friendly. gosh. Like, the, <laughs> there was the gal who literally came up and was like, I've never heard of you guys. And we're like, oh, we're Pacific Northwest. Da, 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 da. And she's like, OK, I'll buy your most expensive shirt. And <laughs> she I, was the best. We were like, wait. And I was like, well, what if you hate us? And then it became this whole joke of like, <laughs> you're going to have to mail back the shirt. Oh, wait. She needs to let us know how that went. Oh, like, yeah. Instagram and I'm us so or... bad with names. So if that was you, please email us or Instagram but the us. Shirt is cute so yeah. and I'm wearing it right now oh my gosh I couldn't believe how many people bought shirts we had everyone playing bingo that was so fun it was so fun and and like Josh said uh, he missed out on so many butt pinches which was so I mean I honestly totally forgot about so that being in the you, ad those of you that didn't fast forward our Pacific Northwest <laughs> true crime fest ad at the end of it Josh mentions how if you pinch this bum you'll get a yogurt <laughs> And so many people were disappointed to come to our table and find out there was no Josh Bum and there was no yogurt. Yeah, <laughs> so, so we promise next year. He's going to be doing some squats <laughs> so he can handle all the pinching. Uh, I was telling Alicia that I'm going to make a mold of my butt. <laughs> that people can that buy? People can pinch. <laughs> oh, I mean, I guess. I'll sell them the uh, the schematic or whatever to oh, just we could just get my butt at no, home. No, we'll just get one of those at-home kits and oh, we'll yeah. make them real expensive. You have to sign it. I'm sure somebody would buy I one. Pa- plaster a parasite. <laughs> I could Put do like a little key hook coming out of the butt crack or the hole. <laughs> and then we met our favorite little new fans, our two, yes. two little t- preteens, teens. That Melissa and her daughters, or I think her daughter and a friend's daughter. I yeah. Think. But those yeah. girls, they were fun. They, they, yeah. They got into our bingo. So our bingo game, it was a. Uh, Alicia and I put our minds together and came up with a, a fun way to engage. Well, we weren't sure how it was going to play out, but basically we had a card. It had all the all the podcasts that were doing a live show or was it all vendors? It was everybody. It was vendors and podcasts. Vendors and podcasts. And you would take it with you and get them to sign it or punch a hole when you visited them and bring it back and you would enter our raffle. But really the goal was to just get people interacting and talking. And it was a, it was a big hit. Yeah. And I think what was really cool is someone said, that for some of the shows and some of the vendors, they were a little bit more quiet or not as outgoing. Right. And so it was a little bit harder to socialize with people, which I get. That was and my was, first socializing in It's like been a years. while. Yeah. yeah. I was like, hello, person. It came back very naturally yeah. for us. <laughs> um, but they were like, oh, it kind of led to engagement, even if you weren't buying from them or you weren't whatever. You're just like interacting with these cool people. And everyone was so cool. The energy was so great. I was so nervous. People were going to be like, hardcore about certain cases or like ask certain dates or something and I'd be like "Uh, I don't know and everyone was just awesome it was just like there were a lot of people people. who were somehow affiliated with the case whether they yeah you know that there was one woman who uh her friend's uncle I believe Mm -hmm. was the person that they caught for Jody Loomis so if Mm -hmm. you are on if you follow our Patreon I covered Jody Loomis's case in uh it's DNA baby and I did a live version of the other case, Melissa Lee. Yeah. Um, so I didn't. We didn't have enough time to be able to cover Jody Loomis as well. Maybe, and I think maybe she, next year. I think she also knew uh, the realtor involved in the Kevin Co case, Josh's case. I think that was someone else. Oh, okay. Well, there was someone who was like, "Oh, I knew that guy." There was were my so many people and you're there. Just like what? But you, then you realize this community is built of people that there was something in their life that got them interested mm-hmm. in true crime, whether it was a book or an actual thing. Oh, that yeah. I had a gal uh, come up to the table and she just like pulled up a seat next to me and we just talked for like an hour. It was awesome. And she is oh, a yeah, I'm, survivor I'm... and has been through the ringer of life. But she was awesome. She Her was energy wonderful. was so cool. She's like, you just got to keep going. You got to keep moving. So um, 
yeah, it was just a really fun experience. So and you such have a cool to group. come next year. I do have a couple names only because I cheated off of Instagram and people that tagged <laughs> us because I'm so bad with names. You didn't pull out it's your not that I don't care. I can cards. I can remember like uh, I can remember like people's hair color. Like uh, that one gal had that really cool haircut, and the other girl had like red hair. But I can't do names. Uh, but I know that we had like uh, Julie and Zoe. Julie was uh, one of our winners of tickets and her daughter was there. That was so fun. We got to meet Annie and Tina, uh, like you said, Melissa and, and her girls, Andrea and all the girls from Montana Hell who just yeah. couldn't wait to talk to Greg Olson. They know who they are. They were very sad about Josh's butt being absent. Uh, Justine and Billy, who you can find on Instagram at Justine hate underscore hates you and Billy will stab you because Justine does unbelievable tattoos. I'm probably going to have to go to Idaho to go get one. And uh, Billy does ear curation, which Emily is into right oh, now. Yeah. So maybe she'll be doing that. So uh, but yeah, and all the vendors and all the shows, everybody was just uh, really great. So. Yeah. Check it out. Check and it we out. hope to see all of those people and more at next year's event. Oh, definitely. And we'll we'll be doing another live show. That was too fun. Yeah. And we'll be putting our live show on Patreon soon, yes? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Once so, we get it. There you go. Bye. Josh, anything? Goodbye from Beef. Hey, <laughs> quick question, because I want to make sure. I think those girls were actually from Klamath Falls or somewhere south. I don't. I don't think they were from Montana. No, the group of like five girls. Yeah, I think they were a book club from Southern Oregon. Oh, the one gal said that she had dri- they had driven from Montana. Okay. Well, heck. I, I don't think it's Montana. Yeah, I think they came from Southern Oregon. Oh. Well, if those girls came from Southern Oregon also. <laughs> Whoever you were and wherever you came from, we loved you and it was amazing. And we do remember you. Even if I can't remember names. to each man who fit the criteria to ask for a cheap swab cheap swab I think I'm done for today <laughs> I like to call men sample providers as well <laughs> <laughs> calling no one Tim Tur- I did have a, a VP at our a VP of sales at one of my companies tell me I was looking quote fit and it was because we had just had the sexual harassment training and he thought that's as nice as he could get <laughs> without getting in trouble uh, that was a good one and where you're like oh actually what you do is just like not comment on my body no i don't i didn't mind at all i thought it was great um, yeah you're like actually i am keeping fit Thank he you. also told because i had this like kind of chartreuse shirt i like to wear sometimes he told me i looked like a key lamb pie oh delicious oh <laughs> he was like he might need to go back to that training oh. while yes most people i would be like mortified if they talked there's something about him i just didn't bother him yeah obviously there's different relationships he was much work, older yeah. and like kind of southern and he, he was like i don't know how to tell her she looks as sweet as a magnolia tree in the <laughs> sunshine of a hot dewy summer day god it was so funny he's like you're looking pause fit <laughs> god's okay to say right we did have a healthy soup. What healthy, was your healthy soup? vegetable rich soup. I made Yum. a uh, roasted squash. Yum. Roasted squash soup. And then I asked my Santa Claus for an immersive blender for Christmas. Oh, yeah. I want one of those, too. <laughs> but that'll have to wait till after I get home from the symphony.
He probably could if you wanted him to. Fart? Yeah. I, no, I thought it was you, Alicia. I thought that was <gasps> you. Thought be... I farted that casually. I wouldn't and shouldn't and won't fart My this time. My God, you think I would make that kind of fart Can't and just trust casually? Well, I thought maybe you thought I couldn't hear it or My something because it was like. <laughs> yeah, because I don't think, I mean, besides sleeping or whatever, I don't think Emily's heard me fart. No, I can't remember a I time. did slip. I did slip and accidentally fart in front of Jamie at your house, at your old apartment years, <laughs> years ago. It was a little morning one. I was like, oh, I can control this. And it went a little poot. And, <laughs> and she was, and, and her face it. dropped and she was like, oh, oh my God, <laughs> 20 years and I finally get to hear you fart. You haven't heard her fart? Well, well, you know, sleep farts sleep and fart. bathroom yeah, farts, little, you like, know. No, I've never, I've never heard a bathroom fart. My God. Ever. Wow. No. Wow. Well, I mean, I turn up the TV. I put yeah, it up in my ears. Or... I think my neighbors hear my bathroom <laughs> fart. Yeah. We, we have very thin doors. They're like made out of uh, wafer material, cookie wafers. Oh, shit. Sorry. He had a job as a delivery driver for Franz. <laughs> he had a job as a delivery driver for Franz Bakery. Bakery. <laughs> Damn, I can't keep my tongue moist. And how a uh, how how uh, uh well we have your DNA. He keep he keep Damn this tongue. Side note, Tim and Tom. I mean <laughs> I mean well at first when you were talking about him, I thought you were referencing the guy from yeah. the first half of the yeah. story. No. Brothers, uh, you know, times are different. I guess what was Timothy it? They were born and Thomas. In the Timothy late... and Thomas sounds better. Were they born in the late sixties? Yeah, seventies. Yeah, so I guess the full names do work better. But then you just have Tim Tom, <laughs> and you know they got mixed up constantly. Rubbers. Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production, written and hosted by Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough, edited by Josh McCullough. You can always contact us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. If you just can't get enough of Murder in the Rain, for as little as $5 a month, you'll have exclusive access to bonus episodes at patreon.com. You can find us on all of the socials, and for more true crime, follow at M underscore Murder in the Rain on TikTok, and you can also listen to Alicia and Josh on their other show, Always Be My Sisters. And suck my balls. <laughs> <laughs>